So, there are a number of things here in Exodus chapter 1 that are going on. Of course, the basic facts of Exodus chapter 1 is that there is some review. The, we are reminded that the sons of Israel came to Egypt. We're told that they were multiplying. And then we're basically told that the Pharaoh first makes a plan to treat them harshly and enslave them. And then secondly, makes a plan to reduce their population by killing the baby boys. What is the meaning of this? We could look and see the correspondence of the verbs in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We could notice the correspondence between those Verbs and the verbs in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And we could talk about the Israelites' pursuit of fulfilling the creation mandate. We could talk about the issue of slavery and the unjust treatment of vulnerable people groups and the concept of might makes right and we could evaluate that from biblical standards. We could talk about the right to life and the wrongness of abortion and infanticide and so on and so forth. All of these could be themes that we could rightly tie to Exodus chapter 1. But I want to zoom out and preach the entire chapter this evening instead of breaking it up into three kind of sermons like how I just described. Because I think that there is an even more primary idea than any of the aforementioned ideas that I mentioned. And I think that dealing this way, dealing with it this way, the way we will tonight, will also help us understand the book as a whole better and will frame future expositions in such a way that we more readily grasp what the book of Exodus is about. It's not just a whole bunch of micro-narratives about various things that happen. It's part of a larger macro-narrative. We need to review a little bit before we go on in order to understand the book of Exodus properly. In fact, I'm told that in the Hebrew, apparently Exodus starts with the word and, which has inexplicably been omitted in many of our English translations. So, and these are the names of the sons of Israel, so on and so forth, which makes you think this is connected to something that went before it. What might that be? Obviously, the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus assumes some familiarity with the book of Genesis. Thankfully, we just finished 
studying the entire book of Genesis, and so there is sort of a collective familiarity with the book of Genesis among us. But let's go back and review, not only for the sake of those who may have missed some of these expositions, but also just to refresh our own memories and to have it fresh in our minds what is the broader contact context of the book of Exodus. I'm going to read a number of passages. Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the nations, pardon me, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 15, 1-5 After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Genesis 17, 1-8 When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Genesis 22, 15-18 And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 26, 2-4 And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
Genesis 28, 10-15 Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or beside him, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And finally, Genesis 35, 9-12. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. All of these promises provide us with the larger backdrop against which Exodus is set. God dealt with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob covenantally, entering into a covenant with them, defined terms of relationship in which God promised to give them people, descendants, a land for those descendants to live in, and kings to rule over those people in a land. In other words, to make kingdoms of their descendants, of their children. In other words, there would be kingdoms to come from the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what Genesis leads us to expect will be the case in God's dealings with the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the larger backdrop against which Exodus is set. More immediately, we are now somewhere between 1600 to 1300 years before Christ. That's where we are now in the chronology. 1600 to 1300 BC, somewhere in there. And Joseph has died. Joseph, being the second youngest of his siblings, and dying at 110 years old, according to Genesis 50 and verse 22, was likely the last of his brothers to die. Because 110 was old by this time in history, as it is now. And so if you had a bunch of brothers, and the second youngest was 110, you're going to think the older brothers are dead. So the patriarchs are dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the immediate first generation of the children of Israel are dead. We read as much in Exodus chapter 1, actually, explicitly. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Exodus 1.6. So this is where we are. 
And what is happening to the more distant children of Israel beyond that first generation? Exactly what Genesis has led us to expect would happen. God is keeping His covenantal promises by multiplying Abraham's seed. Look in this passage, verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, again, as I said at the beginning, we could preach about how they were obviously trying to be fruitful and multiply as God had instructed back in Genesis chapter 1. And we could preach a sermon like, be like the Israelites and be fruitful and multiply. But what we should see here is that God is doing for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob what He said. And He's multiplying their offspring. You read later on when Pharaoh devises this plan to kill the baby boys. In verse 20, And the people multiplied and grew very strong. So under this new practice of infanticide, the Israelite population does the opposite of what you would expect to happen, and it grows. We should not fail to note that what is happening is that God is keeping His covenantal promises by multiplying the offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is exactly the way that the deacon, Stephen, summarizes it so many years later in Acts chapter 7 and verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Stephen interprets this as the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Obviously, more was promised than simply the multiplication of their offspring, but certainly no less was promised than the multiplication of their offspring. This is the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises to multiply the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So exactly what Genesis led us to expect is happening here. The offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are multiplying. However, Genesis also leads us to expect that the children of Israel would be mistreated. I read from the beginning of Genesis chapter 15 a few moments ago, in which God brings Abraham outside and tells him to look up and number the stars if you are able. It says, so shall your offspring be. But at that time, I did not read from later on in the chapter, Genesis 15, beginning at verse 13, where the Lord says to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." You see, Genesis led us to expect that God would fulfill these promises to give land and a people and kings, but Genesis did not lead us to expect that it would be linear and without obstacles or difficulties. 
In fact, quite the opposite. God says, look, they're going to go into a land that is not theirs. But eventually I'm going to bring them out of that land and put them in a land that is theirs. Now what is the storyline of Exodus? It's God taking people from a land that is not theirs and putting them into a land that is theirs. And so again, what is happening in Exodus is exactly what Genesis leads us to expect would happen. Pharaoh's ostensible rationale for his mistreatment is lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Douglas Stewart, a commentator, his commentary is one of the most highly recommended commentaries on Exodus. Very well respected. He argues that this phrase, escape from the land, is actually a mistranslation. And he cites the only other two places in the Bible where this specific phrase is used. And he argues, convincingly I think, that it's an idiom. And so what has happened here is that the translators have translated it just very literally, word for word. But as we all know, sometimes idioms are not really to be understood in their literal sense. But an idiom is a phrase that means something else than what it actually technically says. So look with me at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. See this going up from the land? This is the same phrase. But there's something there's something coming up and covering the land, watering the land. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 11. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land. The idea here, this is again in the uh, ESV, a, a similar translation as Exodus where it says go up from the land but in other translations it's rendered they shall cover the land and Stuart's argument is that in Exodus it should be rendered something like cover the land or take possession of the land in Hosea 1 other translations render it and they shall take possession of the land that makes more sense if you go back to Exodus chapter 1 If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. That doesn't really, that's not really a big threat. If, if I'm at war and then my enemies run away, I'm not too worried about that. If they're afraid of them and they don't want them in the land in the first place, and they wish there were less Israelites, remember this is before they enslaved them. 
So he's not worried about losing his labor force. What? If they, if they want less Israelites, and then the Israelites up and leave, who cares? But if we understand this as cover the land, or take possession of the land, and we read it that way, they jo- lest they join our enemies and fight against us, and cover the land, or take possession of the land, that makes much more sense. And that's the sort of rhetoric that has been used throughout history to justify the mistreatment of various people groups, isn't it? Whether it be, you know, those Jews, right, or whoever, right, the immigrants, right? This is the sort of rhetoric that's used to justify the mistreatment of a people group. They're a danger to us, right? And so we have to do something about them. This is the sort of rhetoric that the Pharaoh is using here. Some have hypothesized that this is the first native pharaoh after the Hyksos people were driven out of Egypt. So what happened was there was a people group called the Hyksos people who came in and invaded the northern part of Egypt. And they ruled there for a while. And their ruler called himself Pharaoh. But he wasn't really a native pharaoh. He came in and took over that section of Egypt. And some have argued that Joseph ascended to power during the Hyksos era, which would actually make sense because why would a foreigner like Joseph all of a sudden rise so high in the ranks? Um, But what we see, we do see that actually in Egypt at that time, sometimes there were foreigners that rose so high in those ranks. So it's not, this is not conclusive. I'm not trying to date it or make a definitive thing. I'm just trying to present to you the views. There, there are cases of foreigners rising to high positions in Egypt. But especially if the Hyksos people were ruling, then they would be happy to appoint a foreigner to high positions. So in other words, Joseph may have served as a vizier to the Hyksos pharaoh, as opposed to the native pharaoh. In any case, eventually in Egyptian history, the native Egyptians drove the Hyksos people out And some people hypothesize that the first native pharaoh is this pharaoh who, as Exodus chapter 1 says, did not know Joseph. And so if it is the case that they just drove out a bunch of foreigners who had come in and conquered the north of Egypt, and they had just driven them out and reclaimed their territory, and now here's a bunch of foreigners growing more powerful among them, then this rhetoric of lest they become too um, many, they are too many and too mighty for us unless they join our enemies and fight against us and take possession of or cover the land. This rhetoric would be especially powerful if that is the historical setting. So that's sort of Pharaoh's ostensible rationale for what's happening. He begins by enslavement. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The taskmasters which were set over them were set over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The goal here was affliction. So the first goal is work them so hard perhaps they'll be too tired and too 
weak, weakened by their work to revolt in any serious way. Perhaps the goal, though it's not stated explicitly, was even that the weak and frail among them would die off through this hard labor. You know when there's excessively uh, hot seasons, some of the elderly pass away at higher rates because they can't handle the extra heat. That's especially the case in Canada where there's more significant temperature fluctuations. If we have some days hot, like 35 or above, in Canada for a stretch of a week, there's going to be a whole bunch of deaths among seniors. And obviously the reason for that is they're already weak and frail, relatively speaking, and they just can't handle the extra stress that's put upon them. And so this may be even a the beginnings of a population control method here to kill off the weak and the frail and to reduce the numbers of the people. But what we see is that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad, verse 12. And so Pharaoh then goes to the next level. He calls, it says, the Hebrew midwives. But of course there would have had to be more than two at this time. So most likely these were the women that were overseeing the whole force of the midwives. That Shifra and Pua were representative of the midwife, um, the, mid, the total sum of the midwives of Israel. And so they have audience with the Pharaoh in this matter. Or he calls them uh, to deal with this. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool or see them on the birth stone or something like this. Commentators don't know what to do with this because there's no evidence of like any stool or any stone used. To be quite frank, it probably means when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see the stones, in other words, the testicles, if it is a son, you shall kill him. It's actually, it's actually probably that. In all seriousness, many of many of the commentators like that's not really a minority position. They're kind of like it probably means that. So basically, it's like look at the stones, and if they're stones, then kill them. That's what's going on in this section, and so it's the infanticide of the male children. Obviously, this is a endeavor to eliminate the fighting force of Israel. But what's going to happen if a bunch of the daughters of Israel are raised to sexual maturity and there are no sons of Israel to procreate? What will happen is that they will be impregnated by Egyptian men. And then what's going to become of the children of Israel? They will be no more. And so again, we need to see this in the context of the covenantal promises in Genesis, that basically God has begun to fulfill what He has promised, and He's multiplying the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But their status as a people is jeopardized here, obviously by the attempt to kill them or breed them out. And of course, they're not in their own land, they're in someone else's land. And right now, they don't have a king, they're under the Pharaoh. And so, this is what is happening here in this 
section. And I just have gone over Pharaoh's ostensible rationale for why he's doing what he's doing. But the ultimate reason for Pharaoh's mistreatment of the Israelite people is also given us in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Pharaoh has his ostensible rationale for why he is mistreating the children of Israel. But we need to understand that there are spiritual dynamics at play. Do you realize that there have been many seeds of the serpent? There are many seeds of the serpent throughout redemptive history who rise up to persecute, mistreat, and even kill the people of God. This is a theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation, beginning with Cain, whose sacrifice is not accepted, in contrast to Abel's, whose is. Abel worships according to God's prescription, by faith, Cain doesn't. And Cain kills Abel, just to name a few others. Haman, in the book of Esther, who wants to kill all the Jews. He has his own reasons, but can you not see spiritual dynamics behind that? God has promised to make the children of Israel into a people and give them land and put kings over them and make a kingdom of them. Sennacherib of Assyria, the Babylonians, Herod, kill all the baby boys. Lest the prophesied king of Israel rise to his throne and I be functionally deposed. This is a theme throughout the scriptures. Seeds of the serpent at enmity with the people of God. Trying to mistreat them, trying to persecute them, trying to stamp them out. In our culture today... We note a peculiar bias against Christianity. It is the same liberals who accuse us of being bigots, who are intolerant of any rhetoric against Muslims, against Islam. If you say something against Muslims, then you're Islamophobic. But if you say something pro-Christian, you're a bigot. Do you not see that there is a peculiar focus of the evil one against 
the people of God. And it has always been this way. And so Pharaoh is simply one of the seeds of the serpent in redemptive history who rise up to mistreat and persecute and even kill the people of God so that the promises of God would never reach fruition. We read in the book of Revelation of a dragon. I am sorry, I forgot. Oh, here we go. I wrote down the wrong uh, reference. The dragon stood... Well, let me read beginning at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has prepared a place by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. I'm not trying to exposit that in great detail, but simply to show that this is the way of the dragon. He's there to devour the child as soon as it's born. It seems evident to me on the face of it that that's a reference to Christ Jesus and as it is with the dragon desiring to devour Christ Jesus as soon as he is born so it is with Christ so it is with his people Jesus says if they hated me they will hate you also the dragon is always trying to devour us so that God's purposes would not come to pass This is what's happening from Genesis to Revelation. And we need to understand Pharaoh and his mistreatment of the people of God within this paradigm, through this lens. It is key to understand Exodus within the larger context of the unfolding narrative of redemptive history. The main point of Exodus is not, as I said at the beginning, just anti-slavery or anti-abortion moral examples for example, as we might otherwise preach this chapter. The book of Exodus is not just sort of a personal interest story, the way you might read a novel, you read about the deliverance of the people of Israel. Oh, very interesting. Close the book, move on with your life. It's not that. The book of Exodus is rather another stage in the unfolding narrative of God keeping His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by intervening in the affairs of this world on behalf of His people. As He always does. You see, one of the themes is that the dragon is always opposing the people of God. 
But another one of the themes is that God is always helping His people. It's another major theme of Scripture. In this case, if the Israelites are to be liberated so that they will have their own land, more basic than that, if they are to be preserved so that they will remain a people, if they are ever to get into, out of Egypt into their own land and have kings, as God promised, God must intervene. Else the serpent, the dragon, will have his way. And intervene, he does. This is what the book of Exodus is about. This is what chapter 1 is about. Chapter 2 begins with the birth of a baby boy. Which is why I read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Immediately following chapter 1 prior to this sermon. All of this is happening to the people of Israel. The serpent, the dragon, is trying to devour the people of God. Ah, but the woman conceived and bore a son. Tim Keller, I've I've shared this before, but I'll share it again many times, so bear with it if you've heard it before. Tim Keller shares a story of when he and R.C. Sproul were much younger. Keller was at R.C. Sproul's house in Pennsylvania, and there was a visiting teacher at the Bible College, Alec Motier. And Sproul asked Motier to tell the students of whom Keller was one, something of the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Motir said something like this, If you asked an Old Testament Israelite, Who are you? He would say, I am one of God's people. And I was in slavery. And I could not rescue myself. I could not redeem myself. Certain death was my fate in the land of the oppressor unless God intervened but God did intervene and he provided a lamb whose blood spared me from God's judgment and he provided a mediator to lead lead me out of slavery and he brought me out of slavery And He gave me His law so that I would know how to live. And His presence is with me as I journey towards my eventual home in the promised land. And I'm not there yet, but God is with me every step of the way as I follow my mediator. And one day I will cross the River Jordan and I will be home. And then Motir said, a Christian could say basically the same thing, word for word. This is how we are to understand Exodus. We could add to that, this isn't what Motir said, but we could say, 
the serpent, the dragon, was trying to devour me and my people. But God intervened. The dragon, the serpent, is always trying to devour God's people. Throughout the storyline of Scripture, but God is always intervening and helping His people so that His promises come to pass. We see that the Exodus then prefigures, foreshadows something that happens later on in redemptive history. Jesus Christ becomes the Lamb whose blood we apply to ourselves that the angel of death might pass over. Jesus Christ becomes the mediator who secures our release from our slavery and leads us out of bondage. We follow Him through the wilderness. God's presence is with us every step of the way. He is, Christ Jesus is our tabernacle, our temple in which we meet with God. He is the priest, the priest that ministers. He is the sacrifice that is offered. And He will get us across the River Jordan and into the Promised Land. This is why in the Transfiguration, Remember when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus? You know what you know what it says in the Greek word it says they were speaking with him about his the Greek word is exodus which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Sometimes in our English Bibles that's translated departure. They were speaking with him about his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But do you realize that the Greek word is Exodus? So Moses was there so many years later speaking about the Exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Exodus is not therefore mainly about Egypt or Israel. Exodus is not mainly about Pharaoh or even Moses. Exodus is about God and by way of foreshadowing about Christ and His Gospel. We were in slavery to sin. We, like the Unbelieving pagans around us deserved to die as the angel of death was coming for all Egyptians and Israelites alike. But God provided the blood of the Lamb, which we might apply to ourselves that the angel of death would pass over. God provided a mediator to secure our release from slavery. That's Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of sins by trusting in His blood, His substitutionary death on the cross in our place. The blood of the Lamb avails for us. Jesus, by keeping the terms of the new covenant, sets us free from the curse of the law and our slavery to sin. That we might live 
in newness of life. That we may be obedient to the law of Christ. This is his exodus. It's foreshadowed here in the biblical book of Exodus. May we come to love and worship our God who has rescued us in Christ. As we learn about him in the pages of the biblical book of Exodus in the weeks and months ahead.